Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome back to another episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Graham Charles, and Graham, as a member of the Adventure Philosophy team, became the first to paddle the length of the Antarctic Peninsula. So in today's episode, Graham will share a history of paddling in New Zealand, and their expedition to become the first team to paddle the length of the Antarctic Peninsula, and really a glimpse into some other amazing expeditions that he's completed throughout the years uh, with his team. So Graham and the Adventure Philosophy team really embrace a gritty, self-reliant sense of expeditioning. This is a wild ride, so enjoy the interview. Welcome, Graham. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Ah, I appreciate you taking the time of, out of your schedule. So, Graham, tell us a little bit about your personal paddling history. Ooh, um, started youngish, uh, certainly for my time. I, my father was a physical education teacher at our high school, um, and he had a, a sort of part-time out-of-school enthusiasm for the outdoors, particularly in New Zealand, what we call tramping or hiking, and sort of, uh, sort of long alpine journeys. At that particular time, uh, the idea of whitewater kayaking in our town was seemed pretty distant kind of thing. And I remember sort of watching in awe as some teachers uh, from the high school got these a first fleet of fiberglass whitewater kayaks, and I went and watched them on this river, which I thought was horrendous. But you know, now that I know in hindsight, and many years gone by, that it was kind of class one or two, very very easy. Uh, of course, they all tipped out. The kayaks got broken, all of this stuff. And I remember thinking, "Holy smokes, what's what an activity this is!" We were allowed to use the high school swimming pool because my father had a key and managed it, uh, which meant that when I was about sort of eleven or twelve, I, you know, I was able to use this kayak in the pool, and I had a book, which um, which had instructions on how to learn the Eskimo roll. So I taught myself how to do that with me and I was very good at swimming upside down in the kayak to the edge of the pool to pull myself back up after failed attempts to revisit the book again and see what had gone wrong. So I managed to do that uh, when I was about 14. I, so the standard of kayaking in this town was, as you picked up, was, was pretty low, um, but we were young and keen and, and there was me and two buddies. And then when I was about 14, the school had a teacher exchange with a guy from the UK who had been a premier level slalom kayaker uh, out of the UK. And of course he turned up at the school, wanted to go kayaking, there was no one around and it turned out that me and, and my two friends were the most skilled kayakers uh, in the region. And so he gravitated towards us and uh, we to him. And so we, we ended up doing a lot of really, really easy but disciplined slalom kayak sort of training and coaching sort of through the, my early and mid-teens and these giant kayaks that weren't built for it. But, but that's what I sort of thought of as kayaking. And then when I was about, when I was 18, I managed to go on a course to be, to be trained. Uh, it was a three-month residential course to be trained as a, uh, an outdoor, full-time outdoor educator. I was spent more time climbing and rock climbing and mountaineering than kayaking, but um, I did a lot of kayaking as well. And because of this sort of 
background of just paddling around these gates. Anyway, we, the kayaking course was run by a guy called Mick Hopkinson, who is a world famous kayaker. The first descent uh, of the Dude Cozy was on the British uh, slalom team and had been a coach there as well. And he had immigrated to New Zealand uh, in, the, in the early 80s. And he ran this program and, and, and I, you know, he was, he was a god and it was amazing that he turned up and ran the kayaking on this program. And it turns out that he recognized some sort of talent in myself. And at the end of this course with him, he, we ran our own sort of slalom race for, for public. So, you know, our, part of our role was to run a slalom race. And obviously we paddled in it as well because it was fun. But I beat him in this race, and he was really impressed, considering I hadn't been paddling for all that long, and certainly under no sort of major tutelage. And he said to me then, um, "You should, you should consider a, you know, a career in this." And I thought I was so amazed, and I thought, "Oh, this, that's a good idea." And I got really keen on it. Was having success, so of course it was a positive feedback loop. And uh, so then through the through the rest of the 80s, I did nothing but uh, live, breathe, and train slalom kayaking. Um, made the national team uh, in 1986, and then paddled, paddled internationally, representing New Zealand, or through till 1991, 92, and was just slalom racing, but obviously white water and things as well. So then. Then uh, in '92, I was supposed to go to Barcelona to the Olympics, but the the New Zealand Olympic Committee decided that uh, they would only take a slalom kayaker or any slalom kayakers if if we had regularly placed in the top ten in the world, and I was number three on our team, and uh, only our number one paddler was placed regularly in the top ten in the world, and so he was the only one that got to go. So I gave up. Uh, I retired my slalom career at that point and shifted back to whitewater paddling and particularly exploration whitewater paddling. And so I had then bought some land on the west coast of New Zealand where helicopter kayaking, helicopter access kayaking was, was just taking off on the international stage. And we had hundreds and hundreds of kayakers from all over the world coming to the west coast because we had uh, these absolutely amazing pristine rivers flowing out of the high southern alps accessed only by helicopter so you didn't have to drive complex shuttles the helicopters being new zealand were super cheap uh, in those days 50 60 dollars new zealand um, which you know at that stage the exchange rate was you know was really low for us dollars so that was kind of 30 dollars for an american paddler to fly in have five hours of world-class kayaking on a pristine river arrive back at your car with some cold beers uh, and then go sleep somewhere other and then do it all again. So this was becoming amazingly uh, popular all over the world to come visit New Zealand. And so at that stage, I also had realized that finding information was just not possible because there was no information on these new rivers and, and getting around New Zealand. So I decided to write um, the New Zealand Whitewater Guidebook. So I undertook a six-month mission of just doing nothing but paddling every river run in New Zealand and documenting and writing uh, that guidebook. And so that started, and that guidebook has now been through five editions, um, sold more whitewater guidebooks than any other guidebook in the world, just mostly because I kept re 
editing it and doing another edition up as I said up for five and so um, so that sort of took me through the 90s and then uh, and then into the 2000s and and so all of that I'd, I'd never been sea kayaking really ever before besides that I just didn't you know I hadn't had any appeal the sort of idea of luxury camping on a gold sand beach wasn't particularly my scene but then I had been working at Scott Base uh, in the Antarctic and as a field assistant so I would train scientists and safety things and then be sent out to keep them safe and crevassed terrain and things like that and I'd spent some time with a film crew at the ice edge of the Ross Sea uh, filming orca and emperor penguins coming and going and I thought oh my god you know the, the interior of Antarctica is incredible but it's desolate and there's nothing there and the coastline just seemed like just the most amazing place to have an adventure and, uh, and at that point I thought I've got to come back to Antarctica bring a sea kayak and then have an adventure in the Antarctic Ocean you know just in, in a sea kayak and so it was at that point that I contacted a couple of friends and said hey I've done some research and found out that no one's ever paddled the length of the Antarctic Peninsula and that looks like an incredible place for 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 a journey and, and to go sea kayaking so we set about the next two years raising the money finding a way to get these these massive expedition kayaks that we had built for us um, down to Antarctica and then in 2000 the 2000, 2001 summer, we got dropped off at the northern end of the Antarctic Peninsula and then paddled south 850 kilometres beyond the Polar Circle. Um, and that was, that was just an extraordinary adventure. And we had these kayaks there. We thought, suddenly we thought, hey, you know, people would said this was impossible, can't be done. You, you know, you're committing suicide, all of this stuff. Um, but it was a great, great journey. And no one's done it again. It's been tried twice since but um, people haven't succeeded uh, for some reason. And, but anyway, we, suddenly we thought, hey, we've, you know, we've found something here. We wrote the book. We made the movie. Um, uh, got a lot of acclaim around the world. And we had these kayaks in, in this part of the world. So then we thought, well, hey, we, we're quite good at this as a team. Uh, we had called ourselves Adventure Philosophy as a group because we wanted to revitalize the kind of historic era values of exploration where it wasn't about red bull and a gravity jump of some sort it was about the hard yards um, and what expeditioning really meant and we just happened to use a mixture of our mountaineering skills and sea kayaking in gnarly conditions we were all white water paddlers so of course you know when people say oh what happens when you tip over and things like that we just roll up because there was no in polar waters there's no there's no kind of swanning around in a storm while you figure out some float bag way to get back in a sea kayak. So we had to be very, very solid uh, kayakers to take that on. You know, and back then, back then that, that seemed a little bit uh, sort of different to the general sort of sea kayaking scene as I perceived it. I look at stuff now online and see that the, certainly the, the expertise of modern day sort of extreme or expedition sea kayak is the level of kayaking skill is very 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 high you know so but things seem to be different in the early 2000s somewhat so we did that trip we had our kayaks there and two years later we organized a big journey where we sea kayaked uh, a lot out of Ushuaia uh, west along the Beagle Channel out into the Pacific Ocean 
and then back around into the back of a national park. So we had a 21-day sea kayak leg carrying all of our sea kayaking gear, food, fuel, and mountaineering gear for a three-week traverse of the Darwin Cordillera. So we dropped our sea kayaks off once we got to the western edge of the Cordillera, and then we headed into the mountains and did that in 2003. Then because we were still hot in that area, we thought, what else is there to be done? And at that point, we I'd done some research again and figured out that no one had completed the circumnavigation of South Georgia Island, and that seemed to be an obvious next goal. So we set about raising the money, doing all of that, and, and finally in 2005, we were sailing out of Stanley in the Falkland Islands and heading for South Georgia. That's fantastic. What, that's quite a resume. So, Grant, uh, let's step back for just a minute. Uh, let's go back to the Antarctic Peninsula, the 2001 trip where you had, uh, paddled the length of the peninsula. Tell us a little bit more about that trip. It was an incredible adventure in every way, particularly because there was so much unknown, which uh, any listeners who are into adventure and its true spirit know that that's a large part of what makes these things up and that you know, we had a set number of skills. We were all good whitewater kayakers. We were all good mountaineers. Um, and we were just sort of basically pitching and, and merging a bunch of knowledge from those two disciplines and figuring that we could take on this journey. And just the sort of tension and the excitement and the fear and nervousness were all so palpable there. We had got ourselves to Ushuaia. We'd managed to get hitch a ride across the Drake Passage with these six meter, 18 and a half foot long kayaks that we'd had designed ourselves. Um, we had food and fuel for 36 days in the, with us in the kayaks and, you know, and nothing carried on the deck of the kayaks so we could paddle in big weather and waves so it didn't get washed away. These uh, the kayaks were enormous. They weighed, they weighed a hundred and something odd kilos each when we left the beach we got dropped off this boat left and this was in an era when or a time when we could do this and get dropped off and the boat left and we were truly on our own we had no satellite telephony we had a vhf radio in case we happened to see something off in the distance a ship or something or other and we were on our own so it was absolutely amazing you can't do that now it's impossible to do that journey uh, without a support vessel which sort of trottles around somewhere near you. So that's disappointing, but the sort of way of the world. So we took off, we left, uh, we packed our stuff up in this bay and then we left one evening. I remember it very, very clearly. It was probably around eight o'clock in the evening and the wind was down, but it was snowing, thick sort of foggy mist and snowing, big booming ice cliffs, penguins everywhere. And we, you know, we were scared and nervous um, we couldn't even see how far these impenetrable ice cliffs went and off we went we thought well we've got to do it so we headed off uh, into the ice and the mist and the snow we paddled through till about midnight that night and we were still just paddling along an impenetrable sort of 50 meter high ice cliff uh, and thought well okay well here we are in Antarctica and now there's nowhere to land <laughs> um, so we started looking for islands offshore and we, there was an island coming up so we headed to that. We paddled around this island for a little ways and found a little nook in some rocks which, um, which had a, a snow bench above it. So we paddled into there and set up our first night's camp which was just 
just amazing. And then immediately the next day, the whole island was surrounded by this heavy brash ice, all the bits and pieces of um, uh, glacial carvings that uh, go on all the time. We didn't know if we could paddle in that or whether it damaged the kayaks or anything. So we stayed there for a day and then thought, oh, bugger it, we need, to, we need to figure out if we can do this. And obviously the kayaks were fine and brash ice just slows you down and makes a lot of noise but doesn't do any damage. So then we headed off in the first part of that journey. Um, massive ice cliffs along the northern part of the Antarctic Peninsula. So every day we were pretty much forced to paddle between 35 to 70 miles. So we were doing sort of 10 to 17 hour days every day. A lot of wind, waves, sleet and snow. Every day finishing we'd be wet, trying to find a snow bench, pitch our tent, we'd be angry and um, scared and tempers were flaring and all of this stuff that was just fantastic expeditioning things. But we were, we were, making, we were making miles south and by quite quickly. And around the middle part of the peninsula, we finally got some good weather. It seemed we'd been dodging around some intense catabatic winds, which were always our uh, biggest risk. These uh, pressure-driven winds that come off the peninsula can blow, suddenly come out of nowhere and be blowing 60 or 70 knots. And we hadn't seen those, but apparently they'd been happening ahead of us and behind us when we talked to some ship traffic, which we ran into. But the weather, the weather cleared in the mid part of the journey. We had these gorgeous blue sky days, mirror calm, whales, seals, penguins, lovely campsites, easy in the central fjord system of the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, we got through that zone, so we were kind of two-thirds of the way through the trip. And then we hit the southern part where Antarctic, the peninsula kind of really gets big again, uh, long, big, big areas of ice cliffs, so back to some big days. Our longest day we paddled was 100 kilometers uh, in a day before we could get out. And at that point, we were supposed to get picked up by a small sailboat, um, but the sailboat had got caught up being rescued for some mountaineers who had got in trouble on the peninsula, and they were nowhere to be found. Of course, we had no satellite telephony, no way to contact anyone, and at this stage, we had no idea where they were or how far away. And we were down to, we crossed the Antarctic Circle on February 18 that year. Um, so we'd sort of achieved that part of the mission, but we wanted to go further south. We only had about six days food left. So we thought, well, if we, if, if we get through this small gap behind this island chain, which we knew a yacht couldn't get through, they'd have to go around the outside. Then even if the sailboat was somewhere close behind us, um, they were going to be at least four or five days to get around this island group and pick us up on the other side. So at that point, we, um, I randomly, we, we took a leg stretch uh, late one evening on this little islet, and I climbed up to the top of it with our VHF radio just to see if anyone anywhere could hear us. And I managed to get hold of this um, cruise ship called the Explorer and the, the expedition leader on it and said, oh, you know, hey, look, we we're supposed to be being picked up by a sailboat. We don't know where they are, and we we'd like to carry on south, but we're going to run out of food, and that's going to we're going to need a rescue at some stage. And so we said oh, we'd like to play it safe and try to get back to the central part of the peninsula, uh, where there's more ship traffic and a couple of bases which you know operate there. And so she said she said that they were on their way to go see something for the day and that they would be traveling through this part of this place called Antarctic Sound, 
later in the day and if we were somewhere in the ice then they would do their best to pick us up and give us a lift back north for a while. So we paddled into this zone and then sure enough later in that day the ship came trundling through, pushing through the ice. Uh, they managed to find us, um, pick us up. Uh, it wasn't a rescue because we were doing just fine. And then they drove us about 150 kilometres back north and dropped us in an island group in a place called Port Lacroix, which is a, uh, a kind of a museum, an old British base and, and now a museum thing that's on the peninsula. So then we stayed there for three or four days until finally our sailboat came trotting along and then we packed up, finished our filming to make our film and then sailed back across the Drake and came home. Wow. So this is your first sea kayak journey, you said, right? Uh, yeah. So first sea kayak journey, your uh, 36-day plan. And how many days did it actually take you? Uh, well, 36. Oh, it did take 36. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so a 36-day yeah. plan for your first sea kayak trip with barely any communications in one of the most inhospitable places in the world. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> that, that does I'd sound... Love I, to, I'd love to recreate it, but <laughs> there's just no way these days. Wow. All right, so what did you find to be the some of the biggest challenges on that trip? Uh, the biggest challenge on the Antarctic Peninsula trip was definitely the fear of the unknown and how or when catabatics might start to form and or get us. We realized pretty early on that, you know, we, we were having to commit to, you know, even a 20 kilometer section of coastline with an impenetrable ice cliff means that you're exposed for four to five hours to get along that stretch before, you know, you might have somewhere where you could get out if suddenly this wind came up and wasn't possible to paddle in anymore. Um, and so we knew that every time we did one of these long legs along these giant sort of ice footings or ice piedmonts, that the, the potential risks were enormous. And so we'd have to make that decision and go, yep, well, from what we see, you know, we had no amazing weather information coming to us online or anything. We just were looking at the mountains and the wind and the pressure and then deciding to go. And then, you know, when you're out there for 10, 15, 17 hours thinking, oh, my God, at any moment a catabatic could come. And if the catabatic comes, then we're dead, basically. So how did you how did you research the the locations and just the trip itself? Well, the the re the trip itself was pretty simple. You know, head off, keep Antarctica on your left, and <laughs> and just keep going um, until we reach the Antarctic Circle. So uh, in terms of places to camp and things, we had none. We every day was an adventure like that, and we you know we just would be going long enough and far enough that uh, you know after a certain amount of miles or time or if it was a long long day like a 15 or 17 hour day then it was the first place we could find that looked feasible to get our heavy kayaks and and not particularly functional legs out of the kayak and then these kayaks up to safety and then to build a snow platform for the tent that was all all it needed we just camped you know we just camped wherever we could find so were there any points where you thought this is it we're not going to find a way out uh, some of the really long days, and certainly early on, when obviously your our knowledge of of the environment was so limited that there was there were so many unknowns. When I talk to people about it now, because I've been leading expeditions for the last twenty years to the Antarctic Peninsula, that I know the entire place intimately now. So, were I to be able to do it again, 
you know, now I know every single nook and cranny and bay along that whole route length of that journey. So it would change the dynamic and certainly the tension of that kind of adventure considerably. Um, you know, the weather, you know, catabatics don't care whether you know everything about the peninsula, they can still come. But in terms of that, that kind of uh, tension and nervousness about the future, there's no way that we could recreate that because I know so much about it now. That's fascinating. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it's uh, with the knowledge you have now and with the, the tools we have now, it's hard to recreate that same trip. Let's talk a little bit about your 2005 Saint, uh, South Georgia Island trip. Yeah, well, we were having this success in the Southern Ocean and really enjoying the wildlife and just the adventurous style of, of sea kayaking, which suited us. Uh, we figured out as a team that we were quite we seem to be quite good at it. I knew that the circumnavigation of South Georgia, which I'd been to working as uh, an expedition leader on ships. Um, I'd been to South Georgia a number of times and I, and it's my favorite place on the whole planet. And so I had thought we need to get, we need to sea kayak around this island. But of course, being such a plum place, it had already attracted the interest of um, some really strong expedition teams around the world. And so the race was kind of on for that one in 2005. And even prior in 2004, there'd been people setting up to do it. They just hadn't raised the money. They weren't able to get there. Um, and even in 2005, there was a, a British team who were going to do the same thing. Everyone obviously based uh, sort of working around the same idea that to raise some sponsorship that the idea of a world first was, you know, was a selling point. And so there was a bit of a race on. We decided to go early uh, that year. Uh, so we went in October, which is not optimal uh, for weather and success, but we figured we were pretty good at this and we wanted to go in October uh, to beat the fur seals. So one of the big problems on South Georgia is that by late October into November, the fur seals are in their breeding program and, and the beaches uh, are packed with some five million fur seals with these big ferocious males protecting their territory and so getting even getting out of your kayak at the end of a long day uh, amongst this this absolute packed crowd of fur seals was going to put us at a lot of risk and even to find some real estate to camp on was a problem whereas uh, once the mating season's over then all of the heat comes off and all of the seals they take off the sea gradually but the tension's gone out of the big male balls. So we, the, sort of the option was to go pre-fur seal or post-fur seal. Um, and we decided to go pre, but we were dealing with kind of more wintry weather in South Georgia, which, which obviously reduced our odds of success at some stage, at some, to some factor, because uh, just the fact that the weather is, is the other big player, or is the biggest player of success in South Georgia or not, and the winds on the southwest coast. Um, but anyway, so um, we knew that the Brits were not going until uh, the start of December. Uh, we knew we were going in October. So as long as we were lucky with weather and, and our judgments and calls, then things were going to be working in our favour. So we sailed out of Stanley uh, at the start of October in that year and got down there in good time. Plenty of snow around, snowfalls, big storms and things got ourselves set up um, at the British base, the British own South Georgia Island, and they have a government station there, research and sort of government fisheries stuff. We had to go there to start. 
meet them and get their kind of approval, final approval. And then we took off in a snowstorm one night and started heading our way around the island. We left or we, we figured on about, we figured with storms and waiting on beaches that it would probably take us around 30 days, 35 days. We knew we were good for that sort of thing. Um, but uh, we, you know, the winds never got horrific while we were out there. Or if they did, we were, we'd be happily parked on shore holding our tent down. Uh, and we just sort of kept going. And so we managed to get around the island in 19 days. We definitely slowed up. Once we were back on the kind of more on the safer side of the island um, and closing in on the circumnavigation, we'd slowed right up because the weather was fantastic and we, the wildlife was just extraordinary. We were in great shape. We were all fit by that stage. We were ready to go. We would have happily gone around again if we could have because we were in such good shape and feeling strong by then. We felt we had a handle on South Georgia's moods and the weather as it pertained to sea kayaking. And, and you know, we'd figured out the nooks and crannies of the southwest coast and where there were hidey holes and places to camp where the maps hadn't shown anything because the only maps we had available then showed all these glacier fronts running down and into the sea. But of course, with a changing climate, and particularly in that part of the world, uh, with so much glacial recession, there was a lot more camping spots and beaches to get out on than the maps would have had us believe in 2005. Um, now, of course, with, you know, with um, Google Earth and other things, it's much easier to check these things out in kind of real time, but that was all we had to go on then. So yeah, we, we managed to get around in 19 days. We were sad to have got it done so quickly. Like I said, we wanted to just go again, uh, but that job was done and we, we spent some time on the yacht that was there for us um, and did some filming and finished off our work there. Out of curiosity, um, what changes have you seen over the years in the uh, in, in Antarctica? Oh, Lordy. Um, the most, in Antarctica, the most sort of manifest change, I think, and talk to people about a lot is just the amount of rain. Uh, a mentor of mine who worked on the sort of polar tourism scene in the 80s had told me that um, we did, you know, we'd asked him a lot about the Antarctic Peninsula prior to that trip. And, you know, he'd said that, you know, we'd asked about rain versus snow. And he's like, oh, no, my time down there, it never, never rained, it just snows. But of course, even in 2001, we, you know, we got rained on. And then working down there now, um, 2020, it, it rains a lot on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, and so that, that and then the other sort of big manifestation is the, the movement south of the brush-tailed penguins who are not true Antarctic penguins, but they're able to last and they're kicking out the Adali penguins who, are, who spend the winter in Antarctica and are a true Antarctic penguin. Um, that the changes in the, time, in the 20 odd years that I've been going to the peninsula, how much further south the brush-tailed penguins, uh, the gentoo penguins, uh, chinstrap penguins are moving along the Antarctic Peninsula just purely because it's warmer, more hospitable for them, and they get they they get there early to build nests on rocky outcrops, which uh, become uh, barren of snow much earlier on than they used to. So back to the trip for just a second here. Um, any specific? Uh, you know, wildlife encounters or any moments that really made the trip for you? 
Uh, South Georgia, just the just the sheer quantity of wildlife and how how much fun it was pretty much every night to be camping with thousands of uh, king penguins around loads of elephant seals on the beaches crashing around and fighting and carrying on uh, and just just to be part of that scene every single day was uh, an honor that it's it's impossible for me to put into words how incredible that is to, to just every day finish and be be part of that wildlife scene. In terms of storms, nothing that really nothing that really stood out because we made good decisions and were parked on shore whenever there was wind that was too much for us. Acknowledging that that for the first time on our trips, uh, Jonesy, one of our team, got turned over in some waves, but of course that would have been you know disastrous if he'd come out of his kayak there was no way you know I could rescue him even though I'm a good white water wild water rescuer but he just rolled back up and was sheepish about it and that was it so that was the first time and on at that stage in our career three big expeditions that one of us had been turned over um, but showed why we were we started off in that game as expert white water kayakers uh, not sea kayakers and uh, the the other two that were with you were these uh friends from New Zealand as well? Yeah, both these one of, both these guys had been friends for a long time. One of them, Marcus, had been, we've been um, climbing buddies since we were 14 years old, and he was one of the three of us at the high school that I talked about earlier on in the piece uh, where we learned to kayak together with this British guy. Um, so we've been friends since, since then and still are. Uh, and Jonesy, we had met We'd all been working at a residential outdoor ed centre for many years together and Jonesy sort of rounded out the skill sets that, that we wanted to build a team. Well, who would have thought from those humble beginnings in the, uh, the high school pool that would lead you to the helicopter kayaking and then uh, the, the Antar- Antarctic Peninsula and South Georgia Island and where you are today? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to research, so what are some of the best uh, best ways to research the Antarctic Peninsula and uh, the Antarctica in general? Much easier these days, uh, certainly in terms of putting a trip together, in terms of using resources like Google Earth, really, really gives a pretty good idea of what you're dealing with. I, I use it these days um, for ski trips uh, and, and even kayak trips with clients uh, on the peninsula who want to go somewhere different that I don't know quite as well, particularly ski trips, because you're leaving the coast and heading inland, um, you know, and it gives you just incredibly detailed information about, you know, where the crevasses are uh, from there. So certainly looking at beaches and deciding, oh, yeah, well, if there's a storm here, uh, we're in a sea kayak, then here's a place where we could easily get, you know, looks like it's easy to get out here. Um, so that that makes a lot of difference. And, and what we have found over the years, and when we, we had an expedition plan to to really go to the, the pinnacle of polar sea kayaking, which was to do uh, a long sea kayak trip along a coastline called the Borchgrevink Coast, which um, comes out of the Ross Sea in Antarctica. So you're much, much, much further south with all the big players. And we had tried to put that together as an expedition, but couldn't raise the funds to get there. But what we found out in terms of research was to look on satellite pictures for brown smudges on the coastline. And brown smudges mean that there's a penguin colony. 
and wherever a penguin can get out, a sea kayaking can get out. And so without even thinking, you know, if you link the brown smudges, you know, you're going to, if penguins can get out, then it's a great place for sea kayakers to head to. So that, that makes uh, a useful resource. Certainly on the Antarctic Peninsula these days with the amount of tourist traffic uh, and the amount of ships that are there, it's very, very easy to find people who know the area intimately and or even to get yourself there is much easier these days than, than it would have been. With all the, uh, the ships and tourism that's going on, does it feel remote still? Um, I don't know what it would feel like. Uh, as I said earlier, there's, there's no way that you can ever, you know, we like to believe in a philosophy of beginner's mind when putting ourselves in a problem-solving situation. But, but we know that, you know, once, once the sort of, once the glass is shattered from that very, very first time, there's no going back because you now know things. And so certainly for me, the Antarctica, the Antarctic Peninsula just doesn't feel remote because I know, I know where ships are. I know how to find them. Even if they're not in sight, I just have this, this ongoing program in my head as to where ships and yachts are that particular season. And so if you were to go there, you would probably find or feel like it was as remote as the moon, but that would, you know, that would be different for me. So uh, what's next for you, Graham? Ooh, what's next? Um, kayaking's kind of taken a back seat somewhat uh, after sort of 35 years of pretty much kayaking professionally. I have moved largely to small town and or a town in Bozeman, uh, sorry, a town in Montana, uh, Bozeman, Montana, which is a ski town, a mountain town, uh, with not a lot of whitewater kayaking nearby. Certainly a lot of kayaking if you want to paddle class one and two on the big rivers that flow out of Yellowstone. Uh, and the hard kayaking is all extreme, extreme young man's stuff where you're hucking off 50 foot waterfalls and stuff amongst trees and all this other kind of stuff, which is not my game anymore. My back doesn't sustain these big landings from waterfalls. Um, and so it's, it's kind of on the, you know, I've done a lot of kayaking and I don't want to drive five or six hours to Idaho to kayak these days when I've paddled there a lot before. So I'm, I, you know, these days I'm, I'm a climber mostly. There's a lot of rock climbing in Bozeman and particularly in the wintertime, it's a famous ice climbing destination area, uh, one of the sort of top three places in, in the continental US. Um, and so I, I spend most of my time climbing and skiing these days. So, and you also run an organization, the Polar Tourism Guides Association. Did I get that correct? That is correct. Yep, I'm so, the the president of that association. We're a, we're a professional ind- industry association for the polar for polar guides and standards of minimum competency. So, like all outdoor activities and and associations and uh, attempts at professionalism. Um, they started with a group of senior guides who were getting sick of the cowboy scene, uh, inexperienced people uh, causing trouble and difficulty and a poor reputation for the industry because of poor decisions and judgment and action. Um, and so we got together and decided it was time to set some minimum competency standards for guides. So we've built a qualification system and this you know, professional industry sort of membership with a level of accountability for guides. And so we're rapidly growing that. 
in a rapidly growing industry. Well, uh, Graham, how can listeners reach you if they have additional questions either on uh, your trips or on the Polar Tourism Guides Association? Probably the easiest way is my personal email, which is graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, dot D-B-C, Delta Bravo Charlie, at gmail.com. Uh, I used to have a website, but I, I took that down once I had run out of books to sell. Uh, so it's really just to, just my email. All right. And you mentioned uh, the books. So Unclaimed Coast and uh, Frozen Coast are the two books that yeah, you mentioned before that were out. And the, are they out of print, both, both of those? Uh, yes, they are. The Frozen Coast still has copies, certainly in the U.S., uh, through Amazon that people are selling. Uh, I have, I still have all the leftover stock of the unclaimed coast. So if if, uh, if anyone was, you know, really super keen sea kayakers and book collectors at the same time, uh, really wanted a copy of that, then they can get hold of me and I can get it to them. Excellent. And you mentioned a couple of other uh, films about the trips as well. Are those yeah, available made, anymore? No, no. We the the Antarctic trip was made into a movie called Colder Than Ice. Uh, was shown through. National Geographic and Discovery Channel for some years after the journey, um, but you know it finally ran its course because it was 2001. It's a very old film now, and uh, we had had a limited showing, also of a movie we made of our Tierra del Fuego trip in 2003 uh, with um, the Natural uh, BBC uh, out of the UK, and that did its rounds as well. We shot footage for a movie on South Georgia, but um, but we ran we ran into some production problems and ran out of steam eventually to to, to sort of finish it off as a major major movie. Well, Graham, thank you. This is this has been fascinating learning about uh, your history and learning about the uh, the trips that you've done on the Antarctic Peninsula and uh, South Georgia Island. I really appreciate your time, Graham. One last question that I have, and that is. Grim, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I'm not sure if you've been in touch with a guy called Sean Morley. Uh, he's a, a, a really, really active sea kayaker. Uh, I think lives now in San Francisco. Um, but he he's had a really interesting career. I first came to know of Sean because he was someone who was thinking about the first circumnavigation of South Georgia as well uh he's an ex-brit living in in the, in the states i believe uh so he has a really interesting background i see him on social media still sea kayaking a lot and still sort of sort of pushing the envelope somewhat and just being out there and i've always been impressed with his just how much he's into it and he continues to be into it well sean is quite an athlete and uh, i know he did a uh it was the f- the first solo circumnavigation of all the British Isles, correct? Uh, yes, that's right. All right. And uh, so I will definitely uh, connect with Sean and have Sean uh, or see if we can get Sean on the show. I think that's a great suggestion. Thank you. So. Excellent. So, Graham, again, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today, and I really appreciate learning again about your history and about the history of the trips. And uh, we would look forward to the opportunity to talk again in the future. Thanks. It's been, been fun. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle 
is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Wow. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Graham Charles. What an incredible paddling resume. And that's quite a trip for your first real venture in a sea kayak. So we, Graham's got many more stories, and we'll definitely have to have Graham join us again in the future. Our next episode will feature Yuri Enders. And Yuri takes us to a location that certainly does not come to mind when one thinks of a sea kayak expedition, as he shares the story of his trip to circumnavigate Lake Huskul in Mongolia. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.